uh, so just uh, remember uh, this week, clear uh, in prayer. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll be here at 945 if anyone else does show up. So either uh, we missed the rapture together uh, or it didn't happen. Uh, one of those two things. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we'll take our text this morning. Um, I asked the, the young men sitting up front up here, I said, brothers, when was the last time you were in church where you actually had to hold a hymnal to look at the words? And after about 10 seconds, they said, maybe never, Pastor. We don't, I don't think we've ever done this. So it's a joy and a treat, brothers, to give you that this morning, a blessing from the Lord. Yeah, amen, brother. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we, uh, the internet went down, so uh, there, there, we, there it is. So uh, praise God. Praise God. Uh, we've been talking the last few weeks about gospel culture. Uh, our sermon series, and, and, and the main thing, if you take nothing out, uh, else away from church for the last four or five weeks, uh, this week and next week, just here's, here's the thing, here's the point I want to drive home and what I, hopefully has been coming through in the sermons and in the conversations in our uh, community group meetings, uh, it's that, that the gospel that we say we believe, by statement of the fact that we say we believe this book, should never merely only be truths to which we say we agree. But rather the gospel that we say we believe, that we believe that Jesus has done for us, the good news of the gospel, should always lead us to living our lives different. In other words, that the gospel should uh, form and shape the culture and how we live our lives. It's the fabric of the church, that we live out what we say we believe. And to, to not do that, to, to not live out the gospel that we say we believe would make us what? It would make us hypocrites. And Jesus had very strong words against those who would claim to believe and, 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 and do one thing and yet to not actually live it out. So that's where we've been uh, this morning is uh, where we're going to continue into this conversation around gospel culture and how it shapes our very lives. Look with me in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. If you're there, say amen. If, you're, if, you, if you need more time, say hold up. All right, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 19. Read it with me. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, therefore let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Therefore let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And therefore let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father God, we uh, come to your word this morning now. Uh, looking in the book of Hebrews, Father, but understanding that the book of Hebrews is the same message the rest of the scriptures carry. 
And so, Father, Lord, as we approach your word, I pray that we would uh, approach it with faith, seeking understanding, that, that you would speak to our hearts through the word this morning, that you would be made much of, that Jesus would be lifted high, and that everything else would be made low. So, Father, this morning as we uh, continue in our go- series on gospel culture and what it means to live as the church and as the people of God, uh, Father, I pray that you would move us to a place of encouragement. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kent Hughes, a famous pastor, said this about this passage um, and about the book of Hebrews overall. He says, Though we do not know who the author of Hebrews was, we do know that he was a preacher with pastoral instincts. He did not do theology for theoretical ends, but rather for down-to-earth practical purposes. And so we come here to the great turning point in Hebrews where the writer turns from the explanation of of how great Jesus is above the angels, above Moses, above all other things that the person and work of Jesus to the application of it in the lives of the storm-tossed church. He goes on to say the shift can be stated in various ways from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from precept to practice, from instruction to exhortation, all of which mean one thing. The writer becomes very explicit regarding how Christians ought to live. The main point of this passage, I'll give it to you and then we'll kind of break it down. The main point of this passage is that Christians, that you and I, if we are in Christ, that you and I have access and an advocate to God the Father, which leads then to a culture of three things, coming to God honestly, standing firm in our hope, and provoking each other towards right relationship. So let's, let's, let's dive in here. These two great truths, three implications, and then I'll be out your way. Look with me at uh, Hebrews verse 19. He, he says, therefore, and anytime, I don't know if you've, you've, you've heard preachers say this in the past, anytime you come across uh, the word therefore in the passage, you should stop and ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore. Right, you see what I did there? It's not unique to me. Everyone says that. What's the therefore? Therefore, what is the author of Hebrews doing? He's about ready to launch into something, but unless you understand the grounds of which he is building it upon, you will come to the wrong conclusions. So the therefore, in this case, is, 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 is the writer of Hebrews has just uh, laid out for us in chapter 10, and really from chapter 5 through uh, midway through chapter 10, he has been showing that Jesus is the better law, that Jesus was the better sacrifice, that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. That's why in the beginning of uh, chapter 10, which was the passage that was read for us this morning, he says this, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see is that every sacrifice in the Old Testament was merely a shadow and not the true thing. He, he, he wants us to see that every year, as a matter of fact, go ahead and do this with me. Turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Let's just go there. This is probably about the time in your, uh, day, in your uh, annual time through the scriptures that you're like, I don't know if I can do this, pastor. Read the Bible through in a year. 
I don't know, because you get into Leviticus and it starts having all these laws about sacrifices. And if you really pay attention, the book of Leviticus is quite a bloody book. And we're not quite sure what to, to make of that. We serve a God of grace and truth and love. And what do we do with all this blood then, Pastor? Look with me at verse, uh, chapter 16 in Leviticus, verse 1, because this is, this is crucial for us to understand then. If, 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 if the therefore in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, if he's shifting away from something, we need to understand what he's shifting away from. Look with me in chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they, now look at this, this is this intentional, drew near. Before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd of a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and, shall, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And so what has just happened, let me catch you up very quickly, is Aaron's two sons had come before the Lord and died. And so the Lord tells Moses that, that, that when Aaron... Before Aaron is to come, he's to do these certain things. You see, the sons of Aaron had entered into uh, the Holy of Holies and before the Lord inappropriately. They had stepped out of line and so the Lord struck them dead. Because sacrifice had not been made for them. In any time, this is important for us to understand in our Christian lives, any time we come before a holy God with sin in our hearts, the only answer from a holy God is one of condemnation and wrath. You see, God was actually appropriate to slay his, these sons of Aaron before the Lord. He was, he was the right response because they had sin in their lives. And so, what we get in chapter 16 of Leviticus, is the Lord begins to lay out this, this day of atonement, Yom Kippur, as the Jewish people call it. The, the Yom Kippur, when, when once a year the priest would enter into that place, that sacred place, the Holy of Holies, and make offering a sin sacrifice for not only themselves, but also for all the people of Israel. All of God's people needed a sacrifice to be made for them. And what, what the author of Hebrews says in the beginning of chapter 10, he says, like, all of that, all of the system, all of the, the slaying of animals once a year, all of that was a pointer to something to come. And so here we have in Leviticus a picture of Jesus before Jesus ever steps foot on the scene. And, and the authors of Hebrews says that, uh, that, that, that those sacrifices offered every year continually consistently, every year. He, he says, those could never at any point, even while they were happening, ever make a person clean. They can't give them right standing before God. All they can merely be is a, a sacrifice and a substitute for a time being. And the author, the point of the book of Hebrews is that, that Jesus now becomes the sacrifice. And Jesus' blood 
was the thing, was the, 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 the mechanism, the mode by which uh, you and I and all of the saints in the Old Testament can actually come before a holy God. You see, if the only appropriate response of God to a sinful people is one of condemnation and wrath, then we are all up a creek. Like, we're, we're all in big trouble And yet we know from the scriptures and from the gospel message that Jesus becomes that sacrifice for us. This is why in verse 18 he says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus' blood, Jesus' sacrifice was enough. It was enough. No longer are sacrifices required. All of that to get to the word therefore. If you look back with me in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then he gets into the implications. But, but look with me here. He says, we have confidence, in verse 19, to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This means that you and I can approach God with confidence now because of the work of Christ. Right? This, is, this is what the gospel is. It's, it's giving us access into the presence of of God, into right standing with, with God. The writer here is showing that he is not talking about the old covenant in an entirely different way. He's saying that the old way was incapable of giving life. But this new way, this, this living way, is better. This is the way. It's, it's used to, uh, he's saying like the, there's an inauguration here. Like this, the old things have passed away. The new has come. The sacrifice of Jesus was new in comparison to the ancient sacrifice of the Jews. You see, the Levitical high priest passed through the veil or or this curtain which separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And in verse 20, that veil by which Jesus was able to approach the heavenly throne is the, the means by which complete salvation is given. So, so, brothers and sisters, we have access to God. Now, most of us take this for granted. Like, like most of us take this for granted because we don't realize because every year we're not continually offering sacrifices for our sin. This is something that happened almost you know, over 2,000 years ago. And so a lot of us live our lives with this idea that, that we, yeah, we, of course we have access to God. Of course, Jesus is my homie. Right? This is the way we, we live our, our lives, but we don't really live that way, do we? We just merely say it. You see, the people of Israel had to go through a sacrificial process. For them, it was real every year. They knew that because of the sin in their life and in the, the children of Israel's lives, that they were cut off from God, that they had no right standing. What I'm trying to say is that You and I have access to God, and we very rarely actually understand how massive of an idea this is. Think with me. Adam and Eve walked with God. They knew the voice of the Father. 
day by day they live their life under the conscious presence of, of being connected to God. And so when God said, in the day that you eat of this fruit and of this tree, uh, that you shall surely die, and then they did it. And then they felt shame because of their nakedness. And what did they do when God came searching for them in the cool of the day? Adam, where are you? Where was Adam? Hiding himself. Which is exactly what you and I would do if we truly understood where we stand outside of Christ with our sin before a holy God. But thanks be to God that Jesus paid for our sins. Praise be to God that that he has now opened it up for us. This is amazing, amazing news. But he also goes on, he says, there's two uh, sins this thing has happened, therefore, right? The first is we have access to God, since we have access to God. And then the second one here, look with me in verse 21. This is, there's this advocate with God as well. Verse 21, he says, since we have a great priest over the house of God. So these two points, these two great truths, you have an, you have an access and you have an advocate. You see, Jesus not only entered the true holy of holies, like one time, like the high priest would. Rather, he entered into the Holy of Holies and he continues, he continues to be the high priest over the house of God. The, the author of Hebrews in, in chapter um, 4, early, earlier part of chapter 4, he talks about this house of God when he's comparing Moses with Jesus. He says that, that, that you and I, believers in Christ, are the house that Jesus is building. So, so if Jesus is the high priest over the house of God and you and I are the members of the house of God, this would indicate that those of the house are priests. Now hear me out. The believer does not have to go through any earthly priest. Like, like you being here and me being here as your pastor does not give you any sort of special access to God, does it? Like The same access that you had before you walked into the, this place is the same access you have now, and it will be when you leave. And that is only because, only because Jesus is our high priest, our advocate. You see, under the Mosaic law, only the high priest could pass through the veil and enter the most holy place. And yet under the new covenant, every Christian enters the holy of holies through the Savior. And this is massive, massively important for us to understand. You see, Jesus, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he began to say things like this. And in Matthew 4, 17, he says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or in Mark 1, 15, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of God is at hand? What's What's he talking about? He means that as Adam was able to walk in the garden with God, so now can you and I. Only Adam, in the original creation, had no need to be made clean originally. He merely walked with God. But you and I, having been under the curse of sin, under the fallen nature of humanity, you and I need someone to actually get us in the door. Like we can't get ourselves in. 
And so Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, hey, it's, it's time. It's time. The kingdom of God is at hand, or, or Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now here, this is vitally important for us to grasp this. Because this most of, most of believers in America and the Western church believe that Jesus showed up to get us to heaven when we die. And then we live our lives like that, right? We, we live our lives as merely, well, you know, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to love the Lord, love Jesus. And when I get to heaven, then it'll all get worked out. That's kind of counterintuitive. When Jesus shows up, he says, no, no, like, like here, now, the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's here. Now, it's available to you. This was meant to point us into whatever the world would throw at us. We are not only to exist in a hostile culture, but to push back against its waves. This doesn't mean that Christians are arrogant or prideful, but it does mean we're bold. It does mean we're bold. This is why, Rome, this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ. Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, listen, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So we have access to God because... Jesus is our advocate. These are the two truths of the book of Hebrews so far. And, and this, is, this is all getting, and he's getting ready to turn the ship now to the implications to then, well, what does that mean then, Pastor? Like, how do we live our lives in light of knowing that, that we stand uh, clean before God and we have Jesus as our advocate? What do we do with that? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 22. The first is merely we just come to God honestly. We just come to him honestly. Verse 22 says, let us draw near. Notice similar wording here to Leviticus 16. The, the two sons of Aaron who drew near to God and were killed. You and I are now able to draw near to God. Not with fear, but as the verse says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The, the, the wording here, let us draw near, this is a, uh, the English text doesn't really bring this out, but it's this, uh, this is this continually drawing near. Right, this isn't a one-time thing that you do. Yeah, I, I drew near, Pastor, like back when I got saved, drew near the Lord, he saved me and I stopped drawing near. Now, the implication is that we continually draw near. And we draw near with the true heart, the heart here representing the whole inner life. There must be sincerity within our own being. You see, we must, one must be true, completely genuine, wholehearted. This is similar to what Jesus had in mind when he said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There are to be no mixed motives or divided loyalties. There must be pure, unmixed devotion, sincere love for God. And we, we come to God honestly with where we're at. In a, in a picture um, where we can see this in everyday life of people who, who don't do this, who don't come to God honestly, uh, it's just a very visible picture. Have you ever been talking with somebody 
And they're standing there talking with you. Uh, maybe there's other people around. And, and you can tell by the look on their face, by the way they're interacting in the conversation, like they're just not paying any attention. You ever, y'all ever been there? This happened to me this week. Um, only I was the offending party. There we were. Uh, <laughs> There we were, after a long day, we sat down on the couch, my wife and I, uh, and in an attempt to merely just turn off every thought in my brain, I turned on Facebook, which is very good if you want your brain to turn to mush. And there my wife was, eager to talk about the day and all the things that she had experienced and and eager to hear what I had experienced, and I said, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, okay. You can imagine that night didn't go very well for me. Uh, or our family. And in that moment, understand that in, I, I place something in our marriage. You see what I'm saying? I put something before her. Yeah, I said, uh-huh, yeah, okay. And I love it because I always know when something's about to happen. She said, what did I just say? And I'm just like, uh. And I have enough recollection, enough hearing capacity to usually give her like three words and miss the whole point of whatever it was she just said. This is what it means when when the the book of Hebrews tells us to draw near with a a true heart, full assurance of faith. He's saying, come to God with everything you have. Come to God with full love for him. Because, right, remember, because we're we're not doing this merely, this isn't mere good, feel good sentimentality, you understand? This is built upon and only supported by the fact that we have right standing and access with God and Jesus is our advocate. Don't, don't disconnect the two. We're able to come to God honestly with all the mess of our lives, with all the sin in our lives, still knowing that, that we have faith in him and hope in him, that we stand right access to God because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. Number two, we stand firm in our hope. Look again at verse 23, let us hold fast um, the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You see this plea for faithfulness that the, the, the author of Hebrews continually uh, pulls out uh, is repeated here. It too is a, a continue, continuing action that should be happening. It's not like, uh, you know, three months ago I said I believe the gospel, I confess the gospel, and now I'm like not sure. I said, no, no, no. continue Continue holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The the, the Hebrew words here are instructed to make certain that they possess their profession. You see, by professing, this would equate to their confessing, right? So when they say they believe something, when they merely confess it, like oftentimes when you and I hear the word confession, um, perhaps we think of our, our Catholic friends who, you know, a couple times a week, perhaps, go inside a little box and there they confess their sins to, uh, to a father or a priest. That's not what he means here when he says, let us hold fast the confession. Uh, what he's saying is, let us hold fast, let us continue to believe everything that Christ says. That's the point. He's, everything that, that Jesus says about us, right, we believe. Jesus says we're forgiven, therefore we believe we are Forgive me. He says, don't let go of that. Keep holding on to that. The confession of faith must be steady, unwavering. Well, pastor, I got sin in my life. I'm not sure. Well, listen, just keep believing. Keep believing that the Lord loves you. 
Keep believing that Jesus died for your sin this week. Keep believing that. Keep believing that, the, that you have the Spirit living within you to actually keep you from sin. So many people live on so little in the world, merely surviving, putting one foot in front of the next. But the Christian hope is hope that takes us back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Let me read it for you. This is the hope that he wants us to hold on to. He says, we have, this is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, uh, in the ancient world and even in today's world with all the modern technology of ships that we have, no ship ever leaves a harbor without making sure that they have an anchor. No ship ever leaves a harbor without making sure that they have an anchor because if everything else fails, at least we have an anchor. We can drop this thing no matter if we're in the deepest part of the ocean or, uh, or a storm is overtaking us by night. We can drop an anchor wherever we're at and there we will stay. You see, the author of Hebrews here is commanding us Hold on to that. Believe that. Believe that the Lord has better things to you unbendingly to the hope that you confess. And then he gives you a reason. For he who promised is faithful. Oftentimes we think of our faith as the thing which holds us on to God. But understand, don't get it twisted that it's God's faith which holds on to us. He is the faithful one even when we are unfaithful. You see, the anchor is not in the sea. The anchor is, is in heaven. It's in the holy of holy. It's anchored in the presence of God. As the winds pick up and as our ships bob along in the storms of life, we sail through all of life's troubles. We must hang on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for our hope is anchored in our access to and our advocacy before God. This type of living, this kind of faithful, bold living is what a gospel culture looks like. Finally, it says here, provoking each other to right relationship. It's a third implication for us. Hebrews 10, look at verse 24 with me. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, what the author of Hebrews does here is he says three let us statements in here. Right? Let us uh, draw near, hold fast, and stir one another up. Consider how we might stir one another up. But this one is different than the other two, is it not? The first two are about the vertical relationship between you and God. So let us, let us draw near. He's like you personally, individually, must draw near to God. I cannot do it for you. The people in this church cannot do it for you. You yourself must draw near to God. Similarly, the second let us hold fast, the confession of our hope, is, is not something that you and I can do for one another. Like it's, it's literally on between you and the Lord. And that's where most people stop. That's where most people stop, especially in our day and age where uh, individualism is all the rage. 
But the author of Hebrews here, the, the Spirit now wants us to see that there's a third component. He takes the vertical relationship between man and God and turns it horizontal between man and himself and other men, other women. Verse 24, he points the believer's attention to his fellow Christians. This is always God's order, by the way. Immediately after we have made sure our own relationship with God is correct, God's desire is that you and I then become concerned for one another and about the other spiritual condition of other people, especially of those who actually claim the name of Christ. Here's what this means. This means that my faith with Jesus is not merely my own faith. My faith is also a concern for you. And your faith should be a concern for me. This verse brings out the personal responsibility which a Christian has for one another. Those who are faithful must help others to be faithful also. Here's another reason to be faithful for Christ. Unfaithfulness encourages failure in the lives of others. Think about it for a moment here. He's saying consider, provoke, it's the same word, uh, provoke one another on to love and good deeds. Because if you don't, if you are unfaithful, that unfaithfulness will produce in others unfaithfulness. You see, the, the child of God, the, those who are in Christ must never forget our responsibility to others. But I'm afraid that we live not all the time in a gospel culture which says, yeah, we're going to take care of one another. As a matter of fact, we oftentimes live in a Cain and Abel culture. You said, well, I don't understand what you mean, Pastor. Cain kills Abel, right? It's the first two sons of uh, Adam and Eve, right? Eve has been uh, said that the, between her seed and uh, the serpent's seed that, that he will crush the head of the serpent. So they got this gospel hope in Genesis chapter 3 that, that the coming uh, Savior of the world is coming soon. And so then she, there she has Cain and Abel. And the, the Hebrew text I was talking with someone this week, it's very much like she thought, this is it. Which you would too, by the way, if you were Adam and Eve and you're there and you're like, God said that there's going to come one after us who's going to save us from our sins. You'd be like, yeah, let's go. He's, he's here with the help of the Lord. I've gotten a man, the text says in Genesis 3. But we know from reading the story, it doesn't end like that, does it? As a matter of fact, it goes the other way. Because at the end of Genesis chapter 4, Abel is dead. And Cain's descendants seem to be far worse than Cain ever was. Here's my point. When, when, when God the Father approached Cain, he said, where is your brother? Do you remember Cain's response? This is often the response of us today in the church, by the way. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Pastor, my faith with Jesus is between me and God alone. What about your friends who say they love Jesus but seem to not be, uh, not to be uh, pushing into Jesus? Not, they seem to be living a lie. What about them? Well, Pastor, that's between him and God. Am I my brother's keeper? 
The answer to that question that Cain asked was, Yes! You are your brother's keeper. You are. That's what, that's what the book of Hebrews is saying here. He's saying, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day approaching. You see, this, this idea of merely... Understand, you can come to church every Sunday morning. You can go to every small group that we have and still disobey this command. Do you know that? You can come to every church service and still disobey this command because the command is not go to church on Sundays, is it? You see, the command is not, well, just be involved in all the Christian events that you can be involved in. What's the command on us, church? The command on us is to consider, provoke one another to love and good work. So, so, so how are you doing? How are you encouraging one another? So this is what gospel culture looks like. This is what gospel culture looks like. It looks like pushing one another deeper and fuller and more into Christ. It looks like encouraging one another. This is also, by the way, why I'm not a hellfire brimstone preacher. Y'all, y'all know who I'm talking about, those kind of preachers. Some of you are like, yeah, I wish you were, Pastor. Let's go. Listen, the means by which God intends to save the world is not through fear and trembling, but grace and love. You see, if you walk out of this service, this sermon, or, or any service, any sermon that you sit under, and all you feel is the weight of obligations on you, then are you really encouraged? If you walk out of this service and all you're like, oh, I'm just a failure in my Christian life, and never hear the hope of the gospel that even in our failures, Christ does it for us. If you walk out of here with nothing but, oh, I can never be good enough. All I deserve is hell, and that's probably what I'll get. Then you've missed the point. Or better said, perhaps I haven't preached the full gospel. See, I love when people say, uh, or actually, I, I don't love it. When people come to me after church and they say, well, that's a very challenging message, Pastor. If that's what I hear, and that's just because that's the words we have, or, you know, that's what we say. It's a very challenging message, Pastor. Pastor, and, and, and you walk out of here, and I'm like, I have failed that person. I failed that person. Because when you walk out of here, you should float out of here, not under the weight of obligation, but out of the sense of this is what Christ has done for us. Therefore, let us love one another, serve one another, build up one another, encourage one another. So let me end here the sermon with, with encouragement for you. No matter what sin is in your life, no matter what weight you are carrying, no matter where you've failed as a Christian, the Lord loves you. He loves you. He died for you. He sent His Son for you. He welcomes you. Be encouraged in this, that the Lord alone saves. The Lord alone is the one who can give hearts. So be encouraged in your evangelism to your lost friends and neighbors. 
For it is not your wittiness or your argumentation, it's not your apologetics or deep things of the Lord and understanding this book that will save souls. It is the Father alone which saves souls. Be encouraged, therefore, to then do evangelism. Be encouraged that in light of your sin, the Father still accepts you, even today, even now, this very moment. You see, when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant, it is finished. No more work we must do. For Jesus is our great high priest, and we have access to the Father. I'm going to ask uh, the, the Sobas to come on up. Uh, they have uh, been going to church here now for um, three or four months.